continue to move through the book of James, and we hit a patch here tonight that I think um, we may not be too long, but I've been very wrong about this a lot lately, so we'll see, we'll see how things go. So we want to go to James chapter 4. And I want to back up to the end of what we read last week. So we'll be down in James chapter 4, verse 10. Just as soon as I locate it. Do you have that, Travis? So you have that, Ed? 410? Somebody want to read 410? Yes, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And as I said, that's where uh, James is reiterating that from back up in verse 6. He's talking about this humbling and this humility. And we talked last week about uh, submitting to God, resisting the devil, and He will flee from you, drawing near to God, and God will draw near to us, cleansing our hands, uh, purifying our hearts, letting our laughter be turned to mourning, uh, weeping, everything that goes along with that. Uh, and that's in light of the uh, repentance that God's looking for when we have strayed and we have engaged in areas that we're not supposed to be involved in. God wants us to come back to Him with wholehearted repentance and to demonstrate that that we truly have contrition for for the things that we have been involved in. And we, we do indeed humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. So we're going to arrive tonight in verses 11 to 12 where he again talks about the tongue. So if you recall, we started in the beginning of chapter 3 of James talking about the tongue. And he dealt with uh, what one pastor called the ugliest member of the church. That was the title of his sermon for James. The ugliest member of the church, the tongue. (laughs) So he's going to James is going to pick back up with the tongue here in these couple of verses. Uh, Chapter 4 and verse 11 where he says, Do not speak evil one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And that sounds a bit like a confusing passage. Uh, James calls back on Leviticus chapter 19 a lot in this letter. And I'm gonna, I think I'm going to hit that when we get to the end here. But he will go back to certain commandments that were in uh, the book of Leviticus chapter 19 and draw them into his letter right here. And he's talking about slander, but he's talking about more than just slander in this particular situation. There apparently was a lot of backbiting going on in the church. Uh, because uh, he talks about biting and devouring. And where do these quarrels come from? Well, they come from our desires and speaking evil uh, of one another. Yes, it is, it is a little bit warm, Lou. <laughs> speaking evil of one another. So he's telling us here in this case, we, we talked about the tongue in three. He says, you know, watch your tongue. And we've got to watch particularly criticism. And criticism, again, arises out of the heart, and it comes out of the mouth, but out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when we are prone to criticize someone, we're actually violating the law, the law that Jesus talks about in not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we actually then rise up against the law as a judge when we talk about other people. And oftentimes, we only see in part, and we only know in part, and we can we are prone to misjudge and not have all the information. There is only one righteous judge, and only one judge has the right to judge and properly judge. Um, so we can be in a situation where we do not have all the information. And Stephen Covey gives the example where there was a man on a bus, and he was riding on the bus, and there was a man sitting with him on the bus, and his kids were just completely out of control and unruly. And the man on the bus said to the father, he said, uh, you know, do you really, uh, do you think that you could control your kids? And the man looked back at him. He was being critical and judgmental. Get your kids under control. 
And the, the father looked back at him and said, I'm sorry. He says, we just came from the hospital and their mother just died and I really have no idea what to do. So here's a situation where we absolutely don't have all the details. And we can run into somebody at church and misjudge their response to us or their lack of response. I said, I, I, I'm probably guilty maybe of offending people on Sunday morning because I may not give you the proper amount of attention or I may seem distance or whatever, but oftentimes as the pastor you've got 30 different things on your mind and you may be walking past someone and you're thinking about someone else, something else and uh, so it doesn't always work that well. And you can think, well, that pastor just doesn't like me. Or, boy, was he rude this morning. And it's not just me. That can happen with anybody. You run into somebody here, and maybe, maybe they barely, barely just crawled into church. Maybe their week was so bad, and, and we have absolutely no idea, especially if they don't talk to us about it. And so it is the human heart to become critical in situations where we have no right to be critical and where we don't necessarily know what's going on. And so what is the remedy for that that the Lord tells us? Well, we are to, to pray for people. We're to take them before the Lord in prayer. And one thing's for sure, when we start praying for our enemies, and I'm not suggesting that the people in the church are your enemies, we really do have wonderful people in this church. <coughs> You're going to pray for me? Okay, thank you, enemy. I'll keep that in mind. We really do have wonderful people in this church. But when we pray for our enemies, we're not prone to criticize them. And we're not prone to speak evil about them. It's just like when we're praying, we're not really prone to sin. And so prayer is a remedy for a lot of different things. But this critical spirit, it can, it can get into us and it can get into the church and it does tremendous damage. And uh, oftentimes, if, if we really are coming into that level of a problem, it's best to just go see the individual one-on-one. And, and maybe if, if it's uh, a situation where you need help, maybe you take a brother or sister with you when you go to talk to them. But it's far better to try to resolve something because God is always working toward restitution. And in any relationship, you know, it's far better for, to have restitution than it is to have uh, what they call the elephant in the room, as we know, or this, this underlying tension. And you can tell when you walk in to the room and there's something that's not right between you or another person. Or maybe it's just in your heart. As far as the other person goes, they have no idea what's going on. Uh, perhaps you run into them in the grocery store. And, oh, i just been in the corporate world for 30 years. You know, I, I hear them say, I ran so-and-so in the grocery store Sunday. You know, she went right by me nose in the air, didn't even look at me. She might not have seen you. <laughs> you know? Did you ever go out of your way? Uh, it's just happened to me a couple times, and I don't think that they're ignoring me. I'll be standing in the carport, and someone's leaving, and I'm waving. I don't want them to think that I'm ignoring them, but sometimes they don't turn around. Well, that's okay. <laughs> How many of you have been in situations where people just completely misjudge you, and draw wrong conclusions. And when you find out, you say, gee, I'm sorry, I, I had no idea. I didn't mean that at all. So as believers, we're called to be the bigger person all the time. We're always called to take the high road. And I told you that James also calls upon the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7 here, because this ties right in to what James is talking about. And Look at what Jesus is saying in in Matthew 7 and verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Have you ever had a lot of people quote this scripture back to you? Judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. Again, we're talking about the speck and the plank. Uh, And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured out to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How can we... How can we see correctly when there's a log 
in our own eye. Jesus uses hyperbole a lot. He really likes it. Hyperbole is an extreme exaggeration. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Really? Is that a fair, is that a fair statement? In other words, Jesus is saying it's so ridiculously difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And we're, we're talking about riches tonight. Riches aren't a bad thing. The one thing that's a problem is the greed that goes along with the riches. And Jesus always addresses the heart of the problem. So Jesus is telling us not to be judging again. Remember, James is Jesus' half-brother, and he absolutely has drawn a lot on the things that Jesus said, and Jesus had a good impact and influence on him, and James puts it into, uh, into his epistle here, and he's doing that by the Holy Spirit's anointing. So we've got to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he's drawn uh, this from back in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, loving your neighbor as yourself, and Matthew chapter 22 and verse 39. And also, he's pulling from Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. Well, he's not doing it, but Paul's on the same lines here. When Paul says in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So we know that uh, the word says that perfect love... Or love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, love goes a long way. And I just am always reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul talks about love. And again, this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. I mean, does anyone have a more extensive resume than the Apostle Paul in the New Testament besides Jesus? I'm not aware of any who went through everything that Paul went through. And he's saying... You know, that I speak with the tongue of men and angels, though I can uh, give my body to be burned. Though I do all of these things that we believe are amazing, and we would stand before Christ and say, Lord, did we not do all of these things? Paul says, if I, if I don't have love, I am nothing. So the Word tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And so when we are critical or we're judging another person, we're immediately coming into another area of sin. And James just continues to address rock-bottom, fundamental Christianity. And so that when he gets done here in verse 17 and pretty much says, now everything I told, just told you, you're now accountable for it. Now you know it, which goes back to chapter 2. Don't just be a hearer of the Word, but you're going to have to be a doer because you're now accountable for it. Christ is going to judge us according to the light that we have. And for those of us who have spent our whole lives in church, we've got quite a bit of light. And so when we stand before the Lord, that's what He's going to judge us according to that standard. You were a believer. I sent you preachers. I sent you prophets. He's going to tell Israel that in the Old Testament too. I sent you prophets. You stoned them. You killed them. You threw them into a pit and fed them with the bread of affliction. And it's going to testify against them on the other side. So don't judge. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and one judge he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? He makes it pretty clear there. Are you Jesus? Are you God the Father? No, because we see in part. We know in part. We understand in part. And sometimes we just put our foot in our mouths and insert it up to the knee bone. Huh? People say ankle, insert foot to ankle, maybe, maybe up to the knee. We can really mess things up. Which is, why, which is why we need to wait. Which is why we need patience and more patience and more patience so that we can patiently wait. <laughs> Patient waiting. <laughs> okay. Anybody want to say anything about that before I go forward? Because we're, gonna, we're switching topics here a couple times tonight because this is just what James is doing toward the end of the letter. So as we get to verse 12, we've kind of bringing a close to uh, the section from the beginning of the tongue all the way through what we've been dealing with in chapter 4 for the last couple of weeks. Anyone have any comments on judging or the tongue? Okay. We'll go to the next. The next two sections, I don't know how applicable they are to this group as I understand this group. But I know in part and I see in part. So there are many things I may not know perhaps about this particular group. But God knows. 
doesn't he, Ed? Okay. Verse 13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So from what I know of our congregation, I don't hear a lot of people doing this. This congregation seems to be one that abides by what James is saying here. If God wills, we'll do this. If God wills, we'll do that. But he's talking here probably about believers in this particular situation. And it was common for them to go into other cities and conduct business. And New Testament examples would have been Aquila and Priscilla uh, or Lydia. And this was, this was normal. So what James is addressing here is really not a one-time situation either, but something that was probably happening frequently within the church. And he's reminding them, and, and I guess as it applies to us, if we're not guilty of doing this particular thing, uh, we can perhaps become guilty of it in other areas. And uh, maybe we're saying, well, we, we begin to brag about certain things we're going to do, not necessarily go into a city and make money, but, uh, you know, in, in another month or two from now, I'm going out, I'm going hunting, I'm going to a tree stand, I'm going to get myself a 12-point, whatever we would do. But it's, it's bragging and it, it speaks to our motives. And James is reminding us here, what is your life? Your life is but a mist and but a vapor. And it harkens back to the other places in the Word where God says to Isaiah, prophesy. And Isaiah says, what should I prophesy? All flesh is grass. And as the flower and the grass fade away and they wither, so does the life of man. And I brought up the example um, about the rock couple weeks ago. And then I brought up the example of a cover girl, and I heard afterward that that didn't go over very well with some of the ladies that were listening to me. And so perhaps you misjudged me. Perhaps you misjudged me, or perhaps I didn't clarify myself. (laughs) I was not picking on the cover girl. All I was saying, I did, not say she, I did not say she doesn't look like a cover girl anymore because she still looks fantastic in my opinion. But no matter, all of that is at some point going to fade. And we're going to lose it all. There was a Hollywood starlet who said that she did not want to have the beauty of another Hollywood actress because when the time came to lose that beauty, she couldn't take it. It would just be too painful and too hard. So death comes to us all, men and women, no matter how much natural advantage we have, no matter how good-looking we are, at some point, uh, none of us, none of us can cheat death. And none of us can cheat the aging process. Some people do a pretty good job at it. But James's point is, what is your life? It's but a mist and it's but a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Now, those of us that have been around for a little while, and I'm old enough to say that I've been around a little while. I've celebrated enough birthdays that I could say that. You realize how fast it goes. Doesn't it go fast? And as someone was saying, I think Sunday morning, the older we get, the faster it goes. It just really, really does. Uh, And we realize that we're not going to be here forever. And whether we like it or not, we're forced to make that mental adjustment. Uh, Sometimes it takes a long time. Other times we can just adjust to it very quickly. We make that adjustment that, hey, this, this goes by very quickly. We realize there are certain things in life that we can't ever get back. We can have shoulder replacements, knee replacements, hip replacements, and all these other things, but we're not going to be able to move like we did when we were 18. We're not going to be able to move like we did when we were 27. You just don't get them back. And as we move through life, we realize there are certain things that we just eventually have to let go. So what James is saying here is we have to recognize that our life is is but a vapor and but a mist. 
uh, and that all flesh is grass. And if we do that, then we should live accordingly, recognizing that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We begin with the end in mind. The end is that we've got to approach the judgment seat of Christ, and He's going to judge each and every person according to their deeds. First of all, He's going to say to us, did you go my way? Well, the Father's going to say that. It's all been said and all been done. It was one of the songs, I think probably from the 70s. He'll say, did you go my way, child? Did you know my son? And then he'll look at our deeds, and he'll look at our fruits. Do we have fruits? Or do we bury our treasure? What did we do with what he gave us? What did we do with the time that he gave us? And so it's going to go very quickly. And so he says, what is your life? It's just a mist that appears for a little time, and then it vanishes. Instead of us bragging and saying, tomorrow we're going to go do this, we need to say, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this. And we don't need to just say that, but we need to practice it, or as Paul characterizes it, we need to exercise, exercise ourselves rather unto godliness. And as we do that, this attitude becomes more and more ingrained in us. It becomes habitual so that we, we may not necessarily say it with our mouth, but in our attitude and in our spirit, we're thinking, if the Lord wills. I'm making statements right now, as some of you are making, if the Lord tarries, because we are waking up to uncertainty. And as I was sharing with someone today outside who doesn't attend the church, I think Many people have said in history that the Lord is coming back soon. But at least two or three things, the medical advances that we've achieved in the last 60 years, the technology, the technological advances that we've achieved, and the scientific advances that we've achieved have just exploded. They've exploded exponentially. And we now have the ability to destroy the entire world with the push of buttons. And our knowledge, we are becoming very puffed up in the knowledge that we have. And we are proclaiming ourselves in many cases to be gods. To be gods. And because of that, God is dead and we have no need of God anymore. And I think that it's similar to the Tower of Babel where the Lord said, let us go down. Let us go down. And he said there, and this is an amazing thing that's recorded in that chapter, There is nothing that they have imagined to do that they will not be capable of doing now. And so he he confused them. But I believe we're rapidly, rapidly approaching that. That if God doesn't do something, we may just destroy ourselves and the planet because of our sin, our evil desires, our greed, our, our, our desires for more and more. I just think the Lord's going to have to step in. That's why... Common sense will tell you that every day that goes by, we're closer to the return of the Lord. But it sure does feel like He's going to be coming soon. And so this attitude in our hearts, if the Lord wills, will go to such and such a place. Beyond that, what is your life is vapor. We don't know what our health is going to be tomorrow. We don't know if there's going to be some kind of natural disaster that hinders things. And so I, from what I know of this group, we pretty much live that way. But it's still a good thing to keep in mind when we make plans that the underlying motive, if we're having that humility before the Lord and we're submitting to the Lord and we've submitted our lives to the Lord, Lord, if you will, we'll do this and we'll do that. I know of a pastor who is very um, uh, conscientious about his flock and about his church and about his call. And so he's extremely reluctant to even book a vacation And generally, as the time gets close to where they think they might want to go, they won't book it out months in advance. They'll wait. They'll wait, Elaine. (laughs) They'll wait and wait. And the last minute, God will bless them with something, and they'll feel the release to go, and they go. And that's the attitude that we're supposed to live. Not that we can't make plans. Sometimes we do have to make them, and we have to make them advance, always recognizing, Lord, is this your will? Will you bless this? And our lives are in your hands, Lord. And if you change this, then so be it. We submit to that. So as it is, he says, all of uh, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So this is how he wraps up this whole portion. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, 
For him, it is sin. Now, this is a very interesting verse, and it's a very interesting way for him to close it because he's dealing with sins, uh, not necessarily the evil that we shouldn't do or the bad things or thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not steal, everything that's in the Ten Commandments that are negative, that God says you can't do this, you can't do that, and the things that people cite as to why they don't want to be a Christian because God says that you can't have any fun. Well, that's not the case at all. You can have a lot of fun as a Christian. The fun's just better than the fun that the world has. They just don't understand that. They won't agree with us. You have to have the Spirit of the Lord. I have far more fun here in a service where the Holy Spirit moves than I ever had in the world. And I walk away healthier than I did when I fooled around with the world. And I walk away because sin kills and it stills and it destroys. And although there is pleasure in sin for a season, the wages of sin is death. So it's not just these negative things that we're not allowed to do, but it's the good, the good things that we know to do and don't do them. And those are called sins of omission. So we, we have to watch out for the sins of omission, that if we have the means and the ability to help someone, whether it be witnessing to them, evangelizing them, taking them food, or taking them clothing, uh, meeting a physical need that they have, and we don't do it, the Lord will ask us about that. Is it Ravenhill or, or Bounds that says that? that we, he's going to judge us. God's going to judge us sometimes on all of the opportunities that we squandered that we could have. We could have done other things. Or that God brings someone into our path and we're too busy or maybe we just don't care and there was a need there that we could have met in the Lord and, and we missed it. Now, that shouldn't condemn us. Our hearts should never be condemning us. If our hearts do, we go before the Lord and we ask for compassion and we ask for mercies. And because of His mercies and His compassions that they are new every morning, uh, Jeremiah says in Lamentations, we're not consumed. And I thank the Lord for that all the time. Thank you for your mercies. And that Old Testament Hebrew word is chesed. And it's translated loving kindness. Um, oftentimes it's translated loving kindness. But it's a big word and it's used all throughout the Old Testament. And it talks about one of the characteristics of God, his chesed. And uh, I just pray that before the Lord a lot. His mercies, his compassion, his loving kindness toward us, that he is long-suffering toward us and full of mercy. And so if our hearts condemn us, we go before the Lord and we ask forgiveness, and he is faithful and just to forgive us and to restore us. So this statement relates uh, right here, doesn't just relate to this particular three or four verses uh, on the boasting but pretty much covers everything that James has addressed up to this point in the letter, which covers quite a bit of ground for the Christian walk. I mean, think of everything that James has covered in these first four chapters. And so he's saying to us, um, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so another word of saying this, another way of saying this to us is he's saying, okay, basically I've told you all this, now you know, now you're accountable for it, so go do it. And that's, if I was to put it in, in, in that kind of vocabulary, that's how he's summing up everything that he said to us so far. So what does that include? Well, some of the high points of what we've talked about. It, it deals with trials and temptations, that we trust in the Lord and we rest in the Lord and we come through trials and temptations properly. It deals with being a doer of the Word and not just a hearer of the Word. It deals with controlling our tongues. It deals with controlling our desires and the quarreling and the fighting that comes from the de desires that are in our heart. It deals with his command, submit to God. It deals with resist the devil and he will flee from you. Everything he's brought up in these first four chapters, he's basically saying to him who knows to do right and doesn't do it, it's sin. And so if we have a light that God has brought into our lives. And as we're, as we're walking in the light and we're obedient to the Lord, does not the Lord bring us into greater light? So if we've walked with the Lord for a while and we're 
being obedient and we come into greater and greater and greater light, we're responsible, each one of us individually is responsible to walk in that light. So that if I've been walking with the Lord for 30 years and the Lord has blessed me and given me gifts and talents as a minister and other things and has given me particular light, God doesn't expect a newborn babe in Christ to walk in that same light. He doesn't expect someone who's been in Christ for two years to walk in that light. And sometimes we can look at another believer coming back to the critical spirit. Maybe they've only been saved for six months or a year and say, oh my goodness, how dare they engage in that particular sin? Or someone will judge us, maybe something, uh, believers that have been with the Lord for 30, 40 years, because we won't do certain things that another person thinks there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, the Lord put his finger on it in my life, and I believe that he doesn't want me doing it. So for me to do it, it violates my conscience, and it becomes sin. And Paul addresses this all through his letters. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. And when we take a particular liberty and we cause another brother or sister to uh, stumble because of that liberty, then we've created a problem. So we are to walk in the light that the Lord has given us. And it doesn't matter if other people agree with us or not. Now, I'm not talking about guys that you decide you're going to go out to a strip club one night because you don't have any conviction that that's a problem, and another brother or sister is coming to you and saying, you should not be going to a strip club. You know what? The light that I'm walking in, I feel perfectly fine about that. And you know what? That's an extreme example, but we got Christians coming up to us all the time telling they see absolutely nothing wrong with abortion. Absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. And I'm thinking, what knowledge and sources and influence have you given yourself over to to convince your mind to see that in such a light that that becomes okay. And Paul says, I fear lest Satan beguile you from the simplicity that's in Christ. And when we come back to simplicity, just come before the Lord as, as babes in Christ or as innocent children, uh, things become very clear. Things that might seem confusing all of a sudden become very clear. And there are things out there in this world that people say, well, I'm a liberal Christian. And I say, that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as a liberal Christian. And at the time, I didn't really even understand what a liberal Christian was. Since then, I've been edumacated. Edumacated, yes. See, there's a... There's a um, when I was in seminary a few years ago, there was a sweatshirt that I wanted to get, and I sent it to a couple of my professors out at the school, and it said, uh, education is important, but hockey is importanter. <laughs> I thought, what a, what a great sweatshirt. You know, I'd like to work that around. But yes, you get edumacated. I don't even remember why I brought that up. But these things that, okay, as, as a liberal Christian, yes, I found out what liberal Christians are. They believe in a lot of stuff that does not line up with the Word. But they convince themselves that the conservatives or the fundamentalists or the people that take the Word at face value and actually believe that the miracles that are in the Word actually occurred. Oh, my goodness, there's no way. They, uh, uh, they like to demythologize the word. So they de- they demyth it. So they take all the miracles out of the New Testament, these a lot of these liberal Christians, because they just don't believe it. And they dissect it up so much that it's like Walter Butler said one time, his favorite flower was the lotus. He said, and he found a lotus when he was out walking, and he decided to take the lotus apart so he could understand the lotus and the flower. He said, but when I got done taking it apart, I had no more lotus. You get that? We can dissect something in our quest for knowledge, and we can cross into very dangerous areas, and when we're done dissecting it, it's very hard for us to once again appreciate the simplicity, the simplicity. I took meteorology in college one time, and uh, the guy that taught it was wonderful. He was head of the uh, Carnegie Science Center up in Pittsburgh, and it was interesting but I noticed that after I took so much of that class, I would look up in the sky and some of the wonder of the clouds and some of the other things weren't as wondrous anymore because I thought I knew a little bit about them now. And that's an extreme example. But we have to be careful what we engage in. Taught by the Bible, 
led by the Spirit. You know, if, if you get enrichment and you get edification and nourishment out of the stories in the Word and the Holy Spirit feeds you, I get tremendous nourishment and enrichment out of the story of Noah, the things that God did all, all through that story. And people will say, well, we'll scientifically prove to you that that story couldn't have happened. You know, when I get to the other side and I find out that maybe it wasn't that, did I, did I lose anything? No. It brought me closer to Christ. Now, lest you think I went liberal, I do believe that story. <laughs> I believe every word is inspired, okay? Let's just be clear on that. But we've got to be careful what we, what we take apart. And so these, these sins of omission, uh, we've, got to, we've got to walk in the truth and we've got to walk in the light that the Lord has given us. And I promise you, as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, He will bring us into greater light. Because He purges things out of our lives that aren't supposed to be there. He opens the eyes of our understanding. He gives us increased revelation into His Word. And we will see things in a chapter that we read 30 times and all of a sudden say, I never saw that there before, but the Holy Spirit just opened my eyes to this particular thing. And sometimes that's a result of walking with the Lord for a long time and coming into greater light and into greater obedience. And because of that, it's line upon line and precept upon precept that the Lord is able to build and build and build. You know, it's difficult to take a child and teach them an abstract subject like algebra when their minds haven't developed to the point yet where they can handle abstract thought. And to me, it's as clear as day. And Beth will get frustrated with me. She said, you're, you're, you're just going too far out here. Said, but I think they can understand. She said, no, 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 stop. <laughs> so she won't let me do some of this because once you know and you understand, it just seems as clear as can be to you, huh? Uh, so that's how it is. That's how it is with the Lord. So we've got to walk in the truth. Okay, let's uh, let's move forward here. Okay, chapter five. We're going to do this. We're going to do this section real fast. Uh, verse one. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And you're sitting here thinking, I know I've wondered, James, where did this come from? And what does this have to do with the letter? So to help us out here, it seems that James has now shifted to almost a prophetic type of of writing here against the ungodly. These most likely are not believers that he's addressing. And this is typical in the Old Testament. When you come up to Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 13 to 21 will shift away from an address to the Lord's people and will prophetically address the woes that are going to come on Babylon and the heathen nations. You'll be reading Isaiah and go, what just happened? I thought we were talking about the Lord's people. It'll happen in Ezekiel. The major prophets are not easy to read. Isaiah, unless you have a roadmap, some of these prophets, you really do need a roadmap to help you get through these books because it's difficult to tell what's going on. They'll just shift gears in the middle without telling you, uh, oh, by the way, we just transitioned into something else. They just leave it up to you to figure it out. So it seems that that is what James is doing right here. He's prophetically coming against the unbelievers uh, and the rich who are guilty of four different things right here. Number one, they're guilty of hoarding wealth. Number two, they're guilty of unpaid wages. Uh, They're guilty of luxury and self-indulgence. And they're guilty of condemnation and murder. So in verse 1, he says to them, weep and howl. He's not calling them to repentance. But he is talking about this weeping and howling, which is a 
uh, a common theme in the prophets when God says judgment is coming. Now, the believer doesn't need to fear judgment if he or she is walking properly with the Lord. But the unbelievers absolutely need to fear judgment, especially people like this who are are living in self-indulgence and they're living in greed and they're defrauding people. And uh, the Lord came down on this heavy in the Old Testament with prophets. Justice, oppressing the poor, God hates that stuff. He absolutely hates it. And so you'll see certain verses like Isaiah 13, 6, where this is uh, in, in light of Babylon. We've just come out of the first 12 chapters of Isaiah dealing with God's people and into chapter 13, verse 6, and it says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Uh, Isaiah 15, 3, In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares everyone wails, and melts in tears, again, dealing with, with the heathen nations. The, uh, Amos chapter 8 and verse 3, The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. So then he talks to them. Uh, he's talking about the hoarding of the wages right here. Uh, well... Or hoarding of the wealth. Wealth back then would be in, in, uh, in money, in silver and gold, but it could also be in commodities. It could be in grain, uh, and it could be in garments and clothing too. So James is talking here, your, your money has, has corroded. Uh, you've got so much of it, it's laying around, you don't even know what to do with it. Your money's corroding. In other words, you have excess, and Paul talks about that all the time in, in the Word, that we shouldn't have excess. Not that we can't have savings and things that are stored up, but when somebody gives themselves to excess and to greed, it's, uh, it almost becomes an insatiable desire. So the more they get, the more they get, uh, the more they want, flesh is never satisfied. And so they're hoarding this wealth. And he says, your clothes have become moth-eaten. And their corrosion uh, of the gold and the silver... Um, will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. For you have laid up treasure in the last days. Again, the last days being anything from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And we're definitely in the last of the last days. Uh, Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The, The blood of the murdered children in this country the the millions and millions how, how many how many babies have been aborted it's uh, i don't know the statistic it's it's in the high millions that blood is crying out to the lord even now maybe it's saying how long o lord like the souls under the altar how long o lord until you avenge us they never got a chance they never got a chance and so as i'm reading this to put it into uh, maybe uh, our times, I think of how about the U.S. corporations that for the sake of profits, and not just the corporations, not just the corporations, but the Americans who are buying the goods have moved their factories overseas so that they can make the goods cheaper. And many of us know that these workers are kids in sweatshops and completely exploited and yet these garments and everything that comes back, all this cheap merchandise from China, which we could rightly call stuff that we have to have. How many toys show up under the Christmas tree that are at a yard sale by August? So I read in the last week that I think it's Western Africa. Americans throw away so many clothes. These clothes all end up over in Western Africa, and they don't even need them or want them. And they have to dispose of them. Some of them are terrible clothes. Our waste out of this country because we have so much and we have so much excess. And so I thought about that in our context. How about the, the overseas labor that we get so these companies can bring this stuff back, sell it cheap, Americans consume it like a bunch of greedy pigs. <laughs> really? I mean, it really is like that. And, and then no sooner do we get done and we, we, we dispose of it. We just throw things away. We discard it. How about the kids, you know, in the slave labor? How about all of the oppressed workers over there? 
and maybe there are, you know, a handful of super wealthy at the top who are just getting rich over it. These are the people that James is addressing here. He says, you have fattened yourself up for the day of slaughter. I'm probably getting ahead of myself on that. Um, okay, verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The failure on their part to realize that they are headed for a final slaughter. And there are, there are a few verses in the Old Testament. I'll go quickly to Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. So this day of slaughter refers to the final judgment. It's talking about you have fattened yourselves up as in a day of slaughter, but they're going to give an account at the final judgment for this. And the account is going to be most scary. Uh, the, the, we'll come back to that. The fourth one is that you have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. So again, this is the oppression that goes to the extreme. It goes to condemning a person and murdering them, and the person does not resist. But God is the righteous judge, and he will vindicate. He will have vindication for those who do not know the Lord, who are guilty of these kind of things, unless they come to repentance and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What they're headed for is in Revelations chapter 19 and verse 17. If you have your Bibles, this is the the last uh, set of verses. We're going to close with this tonight. And this is not a pleasant set of verses here. Revelation 19 and verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead and said, Come gather for the great supper of God. Who's cooking? You don't want to know. <laughs> this is not a potluck. Alton, this is not a potluck at Hancock Assembly of God. Well, it is for the birds. It is for the birds. The great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gather to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who's sitting on that horse? The king of kings. And who's in that army? I hope we are. I hope we are. I really do. We get a front, front row seat to this. It doesn't seem that we're going to have to do everything. The Lord is going to consume them with the sword of his mouth. He's going to consume the lawless one with the breath that comes out of his mouth. It's going to be a mess. And God's calling it the great supper of God. All I can say is, I want to be on God's side when that day comes. I want to be on the winning side. But I honestly would like to see as many people come out of that feast, that great supper of God, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as could possibly come. That's a terrible situation for them. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its present had done uh, the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him, Jesus Christ, who was sitting on the horse, and all of the birds were gorged with their flesh. A very pleasant thing, but by God's grace, we'll be on the right side. So James has moved to this point that's just, it really seems out of place, but it's there. And uh, that seems to be what it's saying. These are unbelievers who have indulged in luxury, self-indulgence, defrauding workers, hoarding up wealth, and and murder. Uh, It's not good at all. 
And James just addresses this. And we'll stop here for tonight. Uh, and I stopped here intentionally because next week um, we'll pick up with be patient. <laughs> be patient again. Really going back to, uh, back to the beginning of chapter 1. So he's bringing this epistle to a close. And uh, as we close here tonight, does anyone want to comment on any of these two sets of passages here on dealing with the, uh, the wealthy or dealing with the, uh, the rich uh, here in chapter 5? Oh, we're a quiet group tonight. No comments? Okay. We'll close in prayer and uh, the altars are open this evening if you want to come before the Lord. Father, we just... Uh, we thank you for your word, Lord, and uh, these were somewhat disjointed topics tonight, Lord, but I pray that uh, for what was, what was presented, Lord, and, and what we read, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, uh, even in areas where uh, our hearts deceive us, Lord God, and there, there may be subtle areas of sin that we may be guilty of. Lord, I think of the, uh, the, the critical spirit and the, the criticism of one another, Lord, and our judging one another. I pray that you would help us not to do that, Lord, but to in turn pray. Pray for our brothers and sisters, Lord. Pray for our enemies. That, uh, and pray for ourselves too, Lord, that we could take the logs out of our own eye so that we could see more clearly, Lord. Help us to be obedient, to walk in the light that we could come into ever-increasing light, Lord. And as we come into that light, Lord, may we uh, do the good that we know to do, Lord. May we not be guilty of sins of omission. And, Lord, show us and make us uh, ever more sensitive to, to your Holy Spirit that we would know where you have given us great blessings, Lord, whether they're financial or just in the truth that we know and the life that you have deposited within us that we can bless other people with that, Lord. Help us to be patient, that we would take the time when you create the opportunity to share your light and your love with people, Lord, and share of the material things that we have with them as well, Lord. May we take what we learned tonight and grow from it, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord God. Continue to equip us and to mold us and to form us, Lord. We praise you that you have counted us as part of your family, Lord. Continue to, to work with us, Lord, for you are calling a church, a glorious church, Lord, white, washed in the blood of the Lamb, Lord, without spot or wrinkle. We thank you for that tonight, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.